Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Biggest, probably boldest example is staging of the mediastinum that used to require surgical mediastinoscopy and is now done through an endobronchial ultrasound as an ambulatory outpatient procedure that you go home about 45 minutes after I'm done. Today, Dr. Kyle Hogarth, a pulmonologist, joins the podcast to discuss topics in interventional pulmonology for this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Kyle Hogarth. Dr. Hogarth is a professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary and critical care medicine. He is also the co-director of the Lung Cancer Screening Program, the director of bronchoscopy services, and the medical director of pulmonary rehabilitation program at the University of Chicago Medicine. Dr. Hogarth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So first, can you describe your clinical practice setting and scope of your practice? Sure. Um, so I work in a large university. I'm a professor of medicine there. Um, I'm pulmonary and critical care, though I do very little critical care these days, and principally focus on pulmonary with a special interest in advanced diagnostic and therapeutic procedures, sometimes called interventional pulmonary. Um, I also uh, focus exclusively on obstructed lung diseases within general pulmonary. Uh, so I don't deal with any of the restricted lung diseases and quite frequently deal with abnormal CT scans lung nodules, lymph nodes, lung masses, et cetera. Okay. And I'm always interested in others' path to a career in medicine. Could you share your path? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually didn't figure out I wanted to be a physician until about my sophomore year of uh, college. I actually thought for a good chunk of my life I was going to be a veterinarian, but the um, severe allergy to all animals with hair was sort of going to be a problem. (laughs) Um, So, uh, and then at some point thought that I'd be, you know, the next great PhD type lab researcher and and was, was pretty good in the lab, but uh, thankfully a couple of summer internships helped me understand that that was not my passion. And it it obviously needs to be your passion. I, you know, worked with people who thought it was absolutely amazing. I thought it was just interesting. So that's, I literally kind of discovered medicine indirectly that way, um, and fell in love immediately. Um, it wasn't one specific uh, moment. There wasn't some you know, aha uh, type thing. Right. You know, arrived uh, at medical school and uh, very undifferentiated. And during all my rotations, just found myself fascinated by physiology, fascinated by the total patients. I think that naturally made me want to be an internist. And uh, when I arrived at the University of Chicago for my training, uh, pulmonary and critical care became an immediate passion. It's particularly critical care. And I'm was very lucky in that a good chunk of the field of critical care started at the University of Chicago, or at least the science behind it. Right. So some, you know, like a lot of things in life, some key mentors influence you and you find yourself basically wanting to be them. Um, and so you start to pursue a pathway that allows you to even have an attempt at being them. Right. And so you did mention interventional pulmonology, which is something that I really don't think that I had heard of until I looked at your faculty bio. Could you go into that a little bit more? We were talking before the podcast started about that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it, I, I guess it's a relatively new field. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the The idea behind it, you know, we've had bronchoscopy for quite some time, the, just putting a scope inside the lungs. But traditionally, that was just to look, maybe suck out some mucus. You could take some simple biopsies. You couldn't do a whole lot. Um, a lot of the advances in technology and both in imaging and uh, ability to do three-dimensional CT scans and then obviously miniaturization of ultrasound and stents and so forth, and even now lung volume reduction done bronchoscopically, has continued to expand the field. And the, the term interventional pulmonologist has been coined at some point. 
Um, there's, a, I guess, an active debate within the community as to what that actually means. To some people, that means you do what's called rigid bronchoscopy. The irony being is that's actually an extremely old procedure. So to define yourself by something that hasn't had a lot of advances, but um, whatever, I, I consider myself an interventionalist. Some people would consider me an advanced bronchoscopist. I suppose either label applies. In the end, what really matters is what you're able to do for patients. And this field, uh, you know, is centers around providing minimal, uh, minimally diagnostic or minimally invasive, excuse me, diagnostics and therapeutics. So things that used to require cutting, boldest example is staging of the mediastinum that used to require surgical mediastinoscopy and is now done through an endobronchial ultrasound as an ambulatory outpatient procedure that you go home about 45 minutes after I'm done. Which I can imagine probably makes some of your uh, thoracic surgeon uh, colleagues happy because my recollection from being a resident is going into the mediastinum was never a good idea or not something that they enjoyed. Yeah, I think we're very complimentary. I, you know, we have a great working relationship with thoracic surgery. This, this is not a scenario that we're going to be taking their, you know, the standard of care for lung cancer is lobectomy, period. Right. Um, and if you're not a surgical candidate for medical reasons, then it's radiation therapy. Um, you know, there are there's a lot of R&D going into ablative-type te- technologies, and, and maybe they will happen at some point. But, you know, what we're able to do is prove that that lung nodule actually is a malignancy and stage you during the same bronchoscopy and quite literally then hand you to the thoracic surgeon and say, this guy needs a lobectomy, and, and they'll, they'll do a further lymph node section just to affirm, because obviously they're able to get the lymph nodes that are uh, sort of intrathoracic, intrapulmonary. Right. And so it's a really nice symbiotic relationship. Um, it frees them up from doing diagnostic work and lets them do pure therapeutic, curative work. Right. He- healing with cold steel, as one of my <laughs> medical school <laughs> friends who became a surgeon. Yeah, but as opposed to a diagnosing with cold steel, right? That's you know, it, you know, right. Well, the old adage that, hey, it was good news that lung nodule wasn't cancer. I'm sorry we had to go in and open you up and you've got a chest tube and blah, blah, blah. You know, when you when patients find out that could have been done with a simple scope with a low complication rate, um, you know, it's 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 a nice evolution. And and it's you know, it's still a relatively young field. There are not enough of us who do uh, advanced diagnostic and uh, work, but the technologies keep improving and disseminating. More and more interest happens in the field. And obviously there's also some really forward-thinking thoracic surgeons that also are excellent endoscopists. And so um, they are able to obviously in areas where there's not a pulmonologist who's doing this work, the thoracic surgeon frequently can do this work. Right. I was going to sort of talk about, you know, the sort of the dexterity that's required to do that sort of instrumentation. So I also noted that there's a, a 3D imaging component to this. Yeah. Could you, for those of us who are either sort of not doing that day in or day out or, or aren't right up on top of it, could you sort of describe that to us a little bit? Well, yes. Yeah, so this is a uh, interventional pulmonary probably uh, partners very nicely with advanced imaging. So think about that CT scan that you scroll through. Just, just act, think of the axial cuts. Well, if you were to stack all them and highlight just the airways, I've got a three dimensional map of you now, don't I? And so, and you know, the problem obviously with the lung is with with full respect to GI, there's one way in, one way out. Uh, with us, there's a lot of branching, and uh, you know, continuous branching. And which way do you go, especially as you get further out? Um, and so the ability to harmonize that three-dimensional map with reality, and so there's multiple different technologies that essentially superimpose you with the virtual you. And you know, so it's like a, the easiest way to think about this is as a mini GPS, um, you know, just a simple concept. But um, what it does and the various you know, technologies that are implementing all of this allow you to drive in three-dimensional space to get to the lesion. Now, what's really been cool too is the then need for 
advanced imaging intraoperatively to be able to prove that you're in the middle of the lesion. And as we move towards any form of a therapeutic intervention, you're going to need to obviously prove that your instrument, if that's an ablation catheter or a needle to deliver some kind of a uh, you know therapy, needs to actually be in the lesion. And um, the advanced imaging that's being incorporated into bronchoscopy now, uh, not just as a roadmap, but as a real-time you know, intra-op guidance, um, is one of the exciting areas. Right. And, and so I did read in your faculty bio that you have a couple of firsts. Um, you are the first physician in your region to utilize robotic bronchoscopy. And I think that you may have mentioned in passing one of the reasons that you use robotic bronchoscopy. And I'm going to steal the title of one of the papers you co-authored. What should we realistically expect from robotic bronchoscopy in the near future? Right. So the idea behind this is, you know, the, the, the concept of robotic endoscopy one was that, you know, the scopes can only go out so far because the force you can generate with your hand through a scope that's relatively, by definition, flimsy, uh, you run into just pure physics. The scope starts to bend more than it can push through the tissue. Uh, but the tissue, of course, is flexible. So the robotic force that it can generate can get you out further. And that's actually been proven. Um, the problem, too, is that all the ways that we've gone out to the periphery traditionally have not involved vision. So it was a virtual representation, and you were quite literally almost looking at a video game, but you were never looking at tissue. So you could never make directionality with your needles and your forceps, et cetera. But now, of course, you can see. And then, of course, stability. Nothing's moving unless you tell it to move. Um, and obviously, things that were extensions off of your scope, if your hand shifted even a little bit, then the tip of this thing, which was obviously much further away, shifted sometimes a, a great deal. And so... That was the value prospect of robotics. The first generation of robotics uh, has been out. There's two on the market. There's a second generation robot that's uh, coming out uh, sometime in February, March, presumably. I mean, there's a lot of ifs in there with the FDA, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, decent odds that by next year we'll have a third robot that should represent a nice upgrade in regards to integration of other technologies. Um, you hope that will then take the first two and make them up their game. And uh, those of us that are the end users will continue to get better products, um, all of which you know, need to obviously have ongoing studies. But in the end, uh, in the absence of studies, it is the ability to you know, apply the concepts of what these devices offer, um, whether or not your last you know, technology for the periphery is out of date and, and, or out of warranty even, and it's time to upgrade, you know, might as well upgrade to what if you know, as you drive it in, you know, mannequins and models feel that is more uh, in tune with how your brain works um, and and so forth, and you'll get yourself where you need to go. There's a lot of uh, abilities to add on technologies to these uh, core devices, because in the end, you know, this this comes up often where people will say, "Well, you know, how much technology do you need, or what did you use?" And my answer is, you know, until we basically never miss whatever technology I need, the patient doesn't care. You know, do you ever, you know. Have you ever heard a patient say after the surgery, you know, gosh, you know, it's, this isn't surgery, obviously, but say like, hey, how many, you know, sutures did you put in? You know, right. like nobody cares. They just want to know everything was done right and done safely and done effectively. Right. And, and technology oftentimes comes along. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Dermabond came about in the yeah. emergency department, the number of kids that we strapped down with papoose boards and then, you know, tried to use tack to make the, yeah. the laceration numb. And now all I have to do is get them distracted and put a nice little strip of acrylic glue on there. Right. Cut. Especially some super glue on them, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, I also read that you were the first for asthma. And then I also read, I think it might have been on your Twitter account, that that may come to an end soon. Can you talk briefly about that? Yeah. So bronchial thermoplasty uh, was FDA approved in 2010. 
um, after a lot of extensive research and some really excellent trials. It's a, it is an add, an add on therapy, an additional therapy for difficult to control asthma. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's got an impeccable safety record. It's got an excellent track record of providing uh, help to patients. Um, it does not have a hundred percent response rate, but I right. counter argument that none of the biologic injectable drugs do either. Right. And, um, it has had, um, ridiculously low uptake by insurance companies. Um, there's a lot of politics involved, but what I will tell you is a significant amount of so-called leadership within uh, the severe asthma world uh, was threatened by procedures like this and also um, held it to a different standard than do their own conflicted uh, intellectual conflict and financial conflict uh, with various uh, pharma-based companies. And in the end, uh, it seems silly, but um, we spend $40,000 a year for injectable drugs versus $40,000 once for a procedure. Um, you know, and so this procedure, unfortunately, you know, uh, I, I mean, I'm obviously, I'm not privy to the inside discussions, but it has never really made a lot of money, if any, and I'm sure Boston Scientific who bought the technology has probably lost money. Um, and so I think has made, unfortunately, a business decision, which, you know, I get it. It, it sucks, but I get it. Um, why would you keep manufacturing something that you can't get people to cover? Um, so it seems to be a dying procedure. Well, actually, I just got a letter stating that they will be stopping manufacturing of the catheters, and without catheters, there's no ability to do the procedure. Now, thankfully, I think we'll have enough catheters to go another two to three years, but then after that, bye-bye. Yeah, unless somebody decides that maybe this will be the Teva of uh, <laughs> of the catheters creations, and somebody will come up. It would. Your last first was bronchos- bronchoscopic lung volume reduction. There we go. Bronchoscopic lung volume reduction. All right, you finally got one. <laughs> and it's for severe emphysema. You know, I know that I've been following the heart failure literature pretty closely, and, you know, one of the things that they have come up with is reducing cardiac volume uh, through a surgery. I'm, I'm wondering, again, I'm an ER doc by training, so small words and, and explaining it simply helps, but this is probably along the same lines? Kind of. So, um, yeah, and as far as all the uh, so-called first, I mean, some of that is, you know, hospitals like to market things, right? But right. Right. No, that's fine. We, we're, we are a site that prides ourselves on early adoption, early innovation, and always trying to be cutting edge. Um, we've been involved in a lot of the research trials, too. So, you know, even though it might be, quote, a new procedure, we've had years of experience under our belt. So bronchoscopic lung volume reduction um, came, was hatched from the idea of surgical lung volume reduction. Right. Uh, the NET trial was published basically 20 years ago, um, and it had the crazy concept. I mean, just conceptually think about this. You have really, really severe lungs. This is for advanced emphysema. Right. So, and it's, what we're going to do is we're going to cut out some of that sick lung. And, you know, it just seems like nuts because we always tell certain people, gosh, you're, you're not a surgical candidate for your lung cancer because your lungs are too bad. But we're going to go cut out a bunch of your lungs so you can breathe better. Um Obviously, it's it's patient selection, very driven. And what, out of that concept of the surgery, the easiest way to think about this is pruning the dead branch off of a tree so that the remaining healthier parts of the lung can expand more. Remember, as the hyperinflation of emphysema happens, diaphragms get pushed down. Uh, the healthier portions of the lung that have less emphysema are being, for lack of a better word, squished by the sicker parts. And if we could remove those sicker parts so that the lungs can behave more efficiently than you ought to breathe better. Well, rather than cutting them out, if you put one-way valves in, unidirectional valves that let the air out, the more air in. They shrink. Yeah, yeah exactly. It shrinks down. And uh, you breathe better. 
Um, and of course, this is a 30 minute procedure with no cutting, um, as opposed to obviously a much more complicated surgery. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a detail oriented procedure. There's a lot of work on the front end and back end with these patients. Patient selection still is very important. Right. Uh, you know, patients definitely benefit from higher volume centers. Um, but a low, you know, somebody has to start at some point and a, a person with experience in bronchoscopy, but more importantly, experience building the system around them to handle the patient evaluations and the complications afterwards, patients will do great there. No, that's great. I mean, and, and I just, all I think about is these large barrel chested patients that I used to see who yeah. couldn't blow a match out. And I know that's an ancient test, but you know, it's still pretty effective. No, it is. And, and you're right. And the thing is too, you know, it's one of the few procedures that's actually named appropriately. We are indeed reducing your lung volume. No, cool. And I also think about not cutting on the chest of somebody who, won't, if you put them on a vent, may never get off. So <laughs> that also sounds like a great thing. Yeah. And, and finally, I'd like to touch on the alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. I noticed that also is one of the things that you're um, working in. Yeah. It's widely underrecognized. And, you know, it, it's sort of this interesting thing that we all know it from a board question and, you know, we intellectually know about <laughs> it, but it seems like even the testing is underutilized. Thoughts on that? Oh yeah, no horrible. Like I always joke, there's literally like one one question on the pulmonary boards about alpha one, and it's actually a liver based question. I actually think the answer is C for those taking <laughs> their boards. There. So the alpha one thing, you know, how does a bronchoscopy oriented guy get interested in alpha one? So this is this is a throwback to you know when you first start, right. you're trying to you know, sort of carve out your name, and and I was always interested in genetics, and I told you I was only interested in obstructed lung diseases, and this is the ultimate genetic obstructed right. lung disease. It's a fantastic patient community of, of well-organized patients who are very interested in helping to study the disorder and move things forward therapeutically. So working in the Alpha One community, the doctors and the foundation and the companies even and the, and the patients, it's fantastic. So I'm really lucky there. Um, it was an unmet need. We there there was really no center of excellence for it in Chicago, so I put up a shingle and voila. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time uh, lecturing on the disease because there is a lot of uh, false information that was instilled on in us for the you know three lines you learned about it in medical school if you were old. What was it? It's, it's some uh, some little old lady who never smoked who lived on a mountainside in like Virginia with a, the purest air possible shows up. With a right. cancer that, or, or well, the, was, the, the usual description, she's not even old, so she's forty. Right. Then state emphysema. And the humor of this is: Did you need to go to medical school to know a forty-year-old non-smoker shouldn't be dying of emphysema? Yeah, I know. That's that's obvious. That's the low-hanging <laughs> fruit, and that's the problem. Is is that's what people test? They test they test that one, and and the humor of it is: Is anytime someone you know, I, I'll ask people say, how many times did you send the test last year? You know, they'll say three times, and I said, oh, so you found three, and I go, no, they were all negative. I said, well, exactly. The, the best approach to this is an agnostic test. And in fact, if you look at the guidelines, both the ATS guidelines as well as the gold guidelines and then the 2016 clinical practice guidelines, and I was one of the authors on that guideline, um, uh, along with obviously uh, some really excellent uh, pulmonary physicians. Um, uh, I just happened to be riding along. Um, the uh, guidelines tell us if we're diagnosing COPD of any level or any level of smoking, you need an alpha-1 test. If we're diagnosing chronic obstructed asthma, uh, if we're diagnosing emphysema. So essentially, if you're prescribing an inhaler, I mean, if you really want us to kind of shorten it, you know, I, I like things that make things easy, right? right. So if I'm going to make it just kind of simple workflow, if I'm prescribing an inhaler, I think you're obstructed. This is part of the workup. And the truth is, when you were asking about thermoplasty, all those biologic drugs now for severe asthma require a blood draw anyway. So right. why not tack this on? It's part of the guidelines. It's 
part of the management. It's good medical practice, and you'll be shocked at what you find. Oh, and there's therapy for the disease too, for goodness sakes. Right. I mean, it, it feels like to me, you know, in the days when I practiced, if somebody came in with chest pain, we had a cardiac profile. Like, so why isn't this tagged on? You can check, you know, pulmonary profile, and then that's just part of the testing. Think of how many EKGs you've ordered in your career versus the number of times you've actually activated the cath lab. Right, exactly. Right? But but you, you did it because, you know, guy had chest pain, got to do the EKG. Right. I mean, guy's got obstructive lung disease. Guy's got to do obstructive lung disease. Rule out the alpha one. Oh, it's negative. All right. You just got regular COPD. Yeah, we don't have to worry about that other thing. So yeah. this, this is my one of my last questions. So it's pretty clear you're a gadget guy. Um, <laughs> does the gadget um, gene spill over? Yeah, I did have the first iPhone. I did have the first there, there iPhone. There you go. So you probably answered my question. Um, does the gadget gene spill over into your non-medical life? I know a lot of orthopedists who are really good carpenters um, and like power tools. The humor of this is, is that, uh, no, I, I, I am horrible at fixing things around the house. Um, if, you know, if you have me do it, it's going to take 10 times, uh, as long and probably not be as good as if you just bring in the professional. Um, I don't tinker on cars. Um, I think it's, it is interesting The the, the gadget gearhead is really only applies to the work that I do internally, I suppose, you know, in regards to patient care, it is obviously my primary interest. It's, um, you know, I always tell people my goal has always been that every five years I want, want to look back and I want to be able to make fun of what I thought was state of the art. Uh, but if I'm not doing that, then I'm not helping to advance the field. And, you know, that's whether that's pushing technologies that we have or, you know, in the sense of pushing them to the limits or whether that's working with the engineers at the next company that's developing the next great thing to help guide them. I mean, there's a lot of really smart people that just need the application to understand the, you know, the unmet need, Right. You take a room full of engineers and describe the problem, you get some really smart people generating cool stuff. They just kind of know that there's a problem to be solved there. So that part of my job, I enjoy a lot. Right. And so you've led me into my second to last question is that in five years when, you know, you look back, what are the technologies that are going to be like, wow, we're using this now. I can't believe we were doing this back then. Right. Well, it'll be the next generation of robotics that'll have advanced imaging built in so that we'll have direct proof that our tool is inside the lesion so that you'll have that when you take the biopsy, we will also have um, AI driven, AI driven automated uh, pathology at the bedside. It'll still ultimately get read by a pathologist, but we were already demoing several devices that allow you to uh, take that material right as you've removed it from the patient and be able to start to look at it rapidly um, and help determine if you've got good lesion and if it's cancer or not. So then you can proceed on to staging. And then equally important will be the the whole world of therapeutics of you know, the, the ultimate holy grail of being able to cure lung cancer from the inside. But until right. that day, but until that day, it will be uh, for people that have metastatic disease to help debulk tumor. And it will be for people who have primary lung cancer, but who've already been radiated, so have no other options. Um, but the idea that having more options to make lung cancer more manageable uh, or METs more manageable, uh, that's what I look forward to. So the devices I'll be using to, to instill or implant or burn or whatever a tumor I'm also excited about. And, and these things are, you know, there, there's also a whole uh, world of other things besides the valves we were talking about for lung volume. Right. There's a whole host of other things going on in this field to help with people with advanced COPD and emphysema. So even more options to help people breathe better, which is definitely one of the most satisfying parts of my job. And, you know, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. Yeah, exactly. 
So finally, as someone practicing in the greater Chicago area, I have a really important question. Cubs or White Sox? Um, <laughs> it appears the Cubs are out of it, uh, and the White Sox may be two and a half games above my beloved Red Sox for that last wild card. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll answer Blackhawks, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm guy, but no, I'm a Cubs guy. I, I lived... Uh, we moved around a lot as a kid, but uh, my, uh, in sixth grade, or I'm sorry, in first grade, uh, we lived in the greater Chicago area, and I went to, you know would get pulled out of school to go to day Cubs games. And so right. no, it just gets in your blood. Now, all that being said, I'm not going to root for the White Sox, but um, but if they're in the World Series, I will definitely be rooting for them because I'm a Chicagoan. I will always be anything that makes my city, you know, have a chance to throw a party, I'm in. Um, and so uh, I won't be, I, I, you know, I wish it would be the Cubs. It never will be again. I think they, you know, had their one chance and, you know, everyone has a bad century and it looks like we're in our second bad century. Um, but uh, whatever. Yeah, Theo Epstein can only. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I'm misery. I'm going through the misery of the Blackhawks right now. They suck so bad. So we'll see. That's right. And Sean's uh, my my sound engineer um, is is also interested in hockey, and we chat about it here and there. I, of course, am a Bruins fan, but married into a family full of, of Quebecois. Ah. So um, the uh, the um, long suffering. There are some tough days. There are some tough days when we we talk Canadians uh, and Bruins. <laughs> long suffering. It's bad, but hey, I mean, we beat the Bruins, so that that counts. Well, <laughs> well, Doctor Hogarth, that's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining us. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform, or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Kyle Hogarth, and to Sean Mullen and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.